please continue to pray uh, for Ukraine. Let's go to our scripture reading for today. Uh, we're uh, in Revelation chapter 9, and I'm going to be ambitious and read through the whole chapter and um, address um, what we can from chapter 9. So Revelation chapter 9, uh, verse 1 to 21. Let's give our attentive <coughs> listening uh, to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor uh, any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. We're looking at the seven trumpets and uh, having covered the first four last week, we now uh, turn our attention to the fifth and the sixth uh, trumpets in chapter 9. And then there's going to be uh, an interlude of a sort, and then the seventh trumpet will appear in chapter 11. So what is the significance of the fifth and the sixth trumpet? We're not going to be able to cover every minute detail in this chapter today, but I do want to make three points that I hope will make this uh, this chapter and, and the vision of the, the fifth and the sixth trumpet more applicable um, to all of us. Three points. First, uh, it's going to be a moral point. 
Second, it'll be a temporal point. And third, it'll be a personal point. Okay, moral point, a temporal point, and a personal point. And let me just these uh, one at a time and explain one at a time. Uh, first, the moral point. Uh, it says in verse 1, John sees a star falling from heaven to earth. And this is almost a, a word-for-word quote from Isaiah 14, 12, where it says, How you are falling from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. How you lay the nations low. It's a clear uh, reference here to, to Satan. Uh, and it says, interestingly, he has been given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And, and that's an expression that means given permission or allowance to do something. And, and what is that? To do what? To bring God's judgment on earth through torment, distra- uh, destruction, on those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, which is a symbol for God's people, as we saw in chapter 7. Um, what is God showing us here? They, there seems to be two intentions in what comes out of the fifth trumpet. Um, Satan's intention, as, as it always is, is for sheer destruction, uh, wreaking havoc. And that's, by the way, what Abaddon, Apollyon, and verse 11 mean. Uh, they both mean destruction and destroyer. That's his intention. That's one intention involved in, in the fifth trumpet and the, the judgment that comes out of that. But what is God's intention? It's to judge partially for now and to warn severely. Uh, two intentions in the same act. It's what Joseph talked about uh, when he said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, left him to die, later encounters Joseph as the second you know, person in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save the lives of many. Two intentions, same act. Here, like Joseph's brothers, Satan intends only evil. But what we also see with this expression of him being given the key, given permission, Satan only operates within the boundaries established by God. He is still the sovereign and divine author of the entire course of history. That's what he has been given the key to the pit implies. Satan's Satan's under authority, not above it. God is still the ultimately uh, the one in control, and He's the one eternally decreeing all things, including the boundaries within which Satan will will operate and and cause destruction. Now, this is where the moral point comes in, because this is where the moral question arises: Is this morally legitimate? Uh, and if you're questioning that at this point, I mean that that just makes you a normal person with modern sentiments, and that's fine. You can question that. Uh, God permitting and allowing you know, Satan to take the key to the bottomless pit so he can do a lot of evil he intends to do, even if God does have ultimately good purpose behind it to bring it around to, to his glorious purpose, is that legitimate? Um, so here's where I want you to consider two things. First, it's not generally a good idea uh, to take our set of modern sentiments and impose that on any text, any text. Um, because that just makes you more inclined towards your cultural bias than seeking truth. Uh, you're, you're inclined towards, I want to read and find what's comfortable to my modern sentiments, and I don't care as much about what, what might be true and disturbing at the same time. So that's something you want to 
uh, factor in as you read any text so that you're not so biased towards comfort and you're actually inclined towards truth. That's always something you want to keep in mind. But any ancient text you approach, you want to check your own biases as you do that. But here's the second thing I want you to consider, and that is what will be the alternative? Let's say you don't like this because it's difficult to swallow. All right, what will be the alternative? What, what will be an alternative universe you can live in where this isn't true? Um, and I would argue there's only two other alternatives. There's only three moral alternatives you can live in. And the biblical version is one of them, and there's only two others. And I would say the only rational one you can hold to is the biblical one. And so let me explain that a little bit. Either we have this biblical universe where God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And he's like this author in control of this entire book called history. And like any author, she, like an author like J.K. Rowling, she can author into the story um, a hero who saves and rescues people who need saving and rescuing. And she can also author into the story a terrible villain uh, who's evil and causes destruction. But ultimately, through the hero, the, the author intends to bring about peace, resolution, um, and a wedding at the end, a feast at the end of it all. That's the biblical picture of God's authority. He has that kind of authority of an author. And they're kind of the same words, author and authority. Here's a second universe, the alternative universe, where God is not sovereign. He is not in complete control. He is, in fact, in constant battle against his equal, and that is Satan. Uh, it's almost like that meme that's surfaced out there uh, where, where Jesus is arm wrestling Satan. I don't know if you saw that. They're, they're equally buff in that picture. Uh, and they're just going at it. So it's almost like this Star Wars narrative of, okay, there's always this balancing of the dark side and the, and the, and the force. Um, and so you never know, right, when, when the next Star Wars movie comes out, whether the dark side will rise or whether the Jedis will make a comeback. Right? You never know. Just wait till the next movie. And that's the duality universe where where good and evil are equally powerful Uh, what does that mean god isn't ultimately sovereign he can't put a final end to evil because evil is just as powerful as he is so this is the universe where god is not sovereign and he's neither ultimately good because if you can't put a final end to evil you're not ultimately good and that makes this universe i would say an irrational one to hold to because a god who is neither good nor sovereign is not god Now, there's a third alternative, and I think this is the only one left, and that is the view that morality is simply non-existent. It's made up. It's a human invention. Good and evil don't exist. Good and evil are concepts that powerful people created to control the weaker people. Uh, At least that's what Nietzsche would say. Uh, And so what's defined as good is really what the powerful people want good to mean, and evil is really whatever they disagree with. And this means that the moral convictions that you and I feel uh, about what's going on in the world, in your, in your society, in your own life, they're morally meaningless. They don't have objective meaning because they're all made up. And your defiance against injustice, against evil and, and all that, it's just your naive submission to people who want to control you by their power. The moral convictions you have about Hitler, Kim Jong-un, Putin, These are all illusions because moral values are meaningless. And this ultimately, I think, leaves you with an irrational worldview because I think deep down we know there's a meaningful difference, meaningful difference between 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Jim Crow segregation. There's a meaningful difference between caring for a child and abusing a child. And, and the meaningful difference between standing up for Ukraine and invading Ukraine. And these are not illusions. These are not made-up concepts, but we live in a truly moral universe. And therefore, the third alternative seems to be irrational. What does that leave you with? The picture in Revelation, where you have a sovereign God who is in control of it all. But he is good, so good will triumph over it all. And what that leaves you with is not ultimately just some rational way of explaining your, your moral universe. What it also leaves you with is, and this is why this is here, I believe, is a comfort. Because if God is sovereign and he is good, then no, that means no matter what kind of evil you see in your world or even in your life, what kind of destruction the, the, even our ancient enemy, the great serpent, can cause in the world, in your life. If you are in God's care, his sovereign care, just as his good will prevail, so will you. You will prevail. And that's comforting. And, and that's why this is here. To say Satan isn't the one in control, ultimately, God is. God is the one in control. And there's always hope, therefore, when we look to his sovereignty and define authority to author not just history but your story and my story as well god is in control he's still in charge he sees he knows he's authored it all he will therefore um, hold you fast and and he's able to keep that promise when he says when god says everything's gonna be okay you can take that to the bank because he is sovereign. That's the moral point that I think we should understand as we continue um, looking at this chapter. And here's a second point, and that's the temporal point. Um, for example, when you take a look at the locusts found in uh, verses 7 to 10, what you find there are, um, again, allusions to various images in the Old Testament, like in Exodus or the book of Joel. These are not meant to be literal things, but symbolic things, just as you know, um, the Old Testament urges us to see them as. Uh, symbolic things pointing us to God's partial judgment upon sin and, and evil. Um, some have forgotten this about Revelation, that this, be this belongs to the apocalyptic genre filled with symbols, and they try to make this overly temporal. Uh, meaning find something within your own timeline that fits this, literally, these descriptions. Um, so there, there's a dispensationalist Baptist theologian, very well-known theologian, who would interpret this passage and say the, the locusts are Chinese helicopters. The breastplates of iron are Russian tanks. Um, and you can immediately rule that out as inaccurate, if not outright dangerous interpretation, because, because the original recipients of this letter it would have been impossible for them to read this and go, yeah, this is clearly referring to 21st century war machines coming out of China and Russia. No, and if the, if the original audience would not have taken it that way, we should not take it that way either. That's, not, that's a bad way to read the Bible. I'm going to read it the way it makes sense of my context. That's, that's basically saying Scripture is not sufficient for everyone who lived outside your time. It's only sufficient for people who lived in your time. You alone hold the key to this interpretation. And that's, not, that's never true about the Bible. It's true for all times, for all people. Um, 
According to biblical allusions and references, these are things that point us to God's partial yet fearsome judgment upon sinners who are unrepentant or continuing in their evil. And this kind of vision is meant to shock them into the reality of what is to come, shock them out of their complacency, to to wake them out of their slumber, spiritual slumber. Just as when you watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge, you, you, you get awakened to the reality of the horror that war is, and, and you stop thinking that childish thought. Guns are cool. Invading other countries is, is fun. It's horrifying. It's terrifying. And, and how, how do you get that idea? Just the visual, the graphic nature of how shocking that violence is. God is showing you a shocking vision to to wake you into this reality of God's coming judgment upon sin so you won't remain in sin. And, and this is why also the, the fifth and sixth trumpets are intensifying, increasingly intensifying judgments that look and sound more severe than the first four trumpets. That's intentional. Remember, uh, chapter 8 ended with the eagle flying over all those who dwell on the earth and, and, and the eagle cries, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. As if to say, uh, please repent at this point by the fourth trumpet. Uh, Don't wait till the woe that is to come at the fifth and the sixth, and definitely don't wait till the seventh, because that means it's too late. When you hear the seventh trumpet, that's the end. Time ends. Therefore, God's call to repentance comes to an end. So as, as the clock is ticking and, and, and history comes, and time comes to an end, the, the call intensifies. The visuals are increasingly shocking. There's, there's more urgency and desperation in the, in the call. To, to give you a more uh, maybe lighthearted way of illustrating this, because this is all maybe a lot, um, I was at a basketball game recently between the, the Atlanta Hawks and my favorite team, San Antonio Spurs, thanks to many of you who kindly gifted that to me for my birthday. I noticed something as I was watching the game in the stadium that I, didn't, I don't really readily notice or, or sense when I'm watching it on TV, and that is this increasing intensification in the crowd as you, you approach the final quarter and the final minutes and the final seconds in the game. Things get intense near the end, um, especially if your home team is in a deficit and there's only so much time now left to, to catch up and make a comeback um, and, and, and win the game. Everyone starts standing. Um, they, they're emotionally more engaged. Sometimes they're cheering. Sometimes they're even yelling, yelling really loud, like at the referee and at the players. They get mean. Things get ugly. Um, why? Why such a difference between the, the first quarter when people are happy just munching on popcorns and t- taking selfies, and the, the fourth quarter when they're getting up and yelling at the referee? Why? Because they know now the game's about to end. And this game is not forever. When the buzzer sounds, that's it. There's no do-over. Um, there's no way to correct the L loss to a W win. That becomes a permanent record. 
When the buzzer goes off, the game is over. What's my point? History, your life works very much in the same way. Once the buzzer sounds, there's no do-over. And the, and the fifth trumpet is this intensifying and growing louder, maybe even the yelling type of sound from heaven that's reminding you of this. You're not in the first quarter. You're not in the second. You're not in halftime. You're in the fourth. There's only so much time left. This reminds me of that C.S. Lewis quote in, in uh, Problem of Pain, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, where he says, quote, we can ignore pleasure, but pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think it's okay to, and, and accurate to interpret these trumpets as God's megaphones to rouse a deaf world. And you will see at the end of the chapter, even then, people are not repenting. But these are megaphones, God's heavenly yelling to say, the clock will stop ticking. Therefore, repent now and believe. I think verse 12 uh, reiterates this. Uh, verse 12 says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. There's a finite number of woes here. You should get the sense that this is urging you to hurry. Hurry. To do what? To repent. Not, not do it in a rash kind of way, in, in this sort of, you know, mumbling a bunch of words that sound like repentance kind of way, but to do it, to genuinely repent without delay. Turn from your sins that lead to death and, and eternal separation from the moral lawgiver, the creator, the holy one, the giver of life. Avoid his accounting, his judgment. Escape his wrath now. Find eternal life in his son. Revelation 3 reminds us, right? He stands at the door and he's knocking. Whoever hears him, opens the door, he will come in and eat with him and he with him. Seek him while he may be found. Receive him. Take him up on his offer while it's still on the table. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And notice that's, that's really the only thing that you're called to do here is to, to respond by repenting. Um, the call here is not uh, repent and then start living a perfectly moral life. Um, that's not the call. That's not a prerequisite to entering the kingdom of God. Uh, repent and live a perfectly mature life. No. Think about the thief on the cross. He repented. He believed. And then what? He came down the cross and started living a moral life? No. He died. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. The call is simple. Repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's all that is asked of you. Do not delay thinking, well, now I got to put my life back together and live a perfectly moral. That's not the call. The call is not for moral perfectionism. The call is to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. 
You don't need to perfect yourself right now. You don't even need to do that tomorrow or next year. All you need is faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from your sins, turning to him for salvation. He, the, the trumpet calls are saying, take this deal. Don't delay. That's the temporal point. That's the temporal point. So is there a sense of urgency in this? Absolutely. But it is not a political urgency. It is not some financial urgency. It's not a physical, health-related urgency. It's a spiritual urgency. That's the temporal point. Okay, last, third. Um, And we've already crossed over to this territory, and that's the personal point in this passage. Uh, Remember this. uh, All of Scripture, right? All of Scripture, we believe, is breathed out by God. It's beneficial for your and my correction, reprove, teaching, training, in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. In other words, if this passage in Revelation um, has no personal point for you, uh, you're not reading it correctly. If all it does is it makes you connect some dots to maybe like the sociopolitical events in your, in your time, around your world, but there's no personal point to you there's nothing here that corrects you and reproves or teaches or trains you're not getting you're not seeing the point what is the personal point here Um, earlier i said god is calling you to repent now right that's a temporal point he's calling you to repent now and and the word now is an important part of that sentence but you know what an even more important part of that sentence is it's you He's calling you to repent, not your neighbor, not your spouse, not politicians that you dislike, you. He's calling you to repent, and that's the personal point. You have to get personal with this text, or you're not getting the text. Uh, Jesus is not revealing this to the Apostle John and to the church because he's trying to make some broad sociopolitical point about our world, or even to give us a moral universe that's rationally defensible. No, although it is rationally defensible. That's not the point. The more urgent point, the the only important point here is this. Get saved now. (laughs) Take hold of God's salvation for you so that you would be transferred from the kingdom of sin and death and darkness and be brought into God's eternal kingdom of light. It's, I know how this sounds to our modern years, uh, but you cannot not sound urgent, not sound like you're in the fourth quarter with 10 seconds left, and not sound urgent, not sound desperate. It, It wouldn't be doing justice to this text. Even though I know that may, this may be very discomforting for our modern years. When the, when the sixth angel blows the sixth trumpet, the, the intensification of the judgment reaches its peak, right? I mean, here it's clearly speaking to those who are unrepentant, those who are severely in a deficit, and, and saying, as loud as they can say, uh, you need to repent now. Uh, you see the number thousand. Remember what the th- number thousand symbolizes, uh, something innumerable. 
and it's multiplied 10 times, twice, and the twice repetition is a Hebrew way of indicating a superlative. You know, in, in the Hebrew, they don't say you know, purest gold. They say gold, gold, and that's the purest gold. So you have 1,000 repeated twice multiplied by 10. That's the amount of troops mounted to, to be deployed with breastplates of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and also their horses like lion's heads with fire and smoke and sulfur. That's repeated twice coming out of their mouth as well. And if that sulfur and smoke and fire language is familiar, because that's probably because you remember the description of God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire out of heaven. This is as loud as it can get. This is as loud a megaphone that God can use to rouse a deaf world. Now, some people have tried to also look at the, the or count up the number of troops here and, and link them to modern-day armies. So maybe, you know, there's a, there's a nation with an army of about 200,000 foot soldiers or something like that. But again, that's a mistaken approach to the passage. Especially when John is very clear in verse 17, he's talking about symbols within the prophetic vision. He says in verse 17, this is how I saw the horses in my vision. Right? He's narrowing the genre for us so we would approach it with the right interpretive tools. Right? This is not a screenshot of history that God sort of faxed to the Apostle John. No. This, this is an apocalyptic vision with symbols, with a clear message. And how do we figure that out? Through the, the, figuring out the allusions to all the other similar images and expressions in the Bible. Uh, the repetition of the mouth imagery found in verses 17, 18, and 19 uh, they seem to be especially emphasizing um, Satan's use of lies and deception as a way of bringing a whole lot of people to destruction. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, um, Satan's a murderer. He's a destroyer. How? How does Satan cause destruction? Did Jesus say it's by him sending you hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers? No. Jesus goes on to say this. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and a father, the father of lies. That's how he, according to Jesus, creates destruction. So this vision seems to be reiterating that. Telling us that one of the most fearful things about the last days of judgment is that many will be deceived by the lies of the enemy. Now, uh, why should this matter to you? When, what, what if you feel like, you know, I, I don't think I'll be deceived this way. Here's, here's the thing about deception, isn't it? You don't know that you're deceived. That's the whole thing about deception, is that you do not know that you're deceived. So how do we know that we are not falling prey to the father of lies? Here's how, right? Uh, scripture tells us Satan's deception according to our passage, leads to one thing mainly. And that's found in verses 20 and 21. Those who are deceived by Satan will not repent. The result of falling into his lies is not suffering financially because you predicted the stock market the wrong way or, or, or suffering politically or even physically or relationally. That is not the main purpose, the ultimate purpose of the devil's lies. 
The devil lies to ruin souls. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The devil knows that. He knows that all too well. Nothing is more harmful and deadly to the human soul than being pridefully unrepentant. Being blind to our own sins. Nothing is more destructive to our souls than that. The truth is, and I hope you know this truth as people of God, we are desperately fallen beings. We're sinners justly deserving of God's displeasure and judgment. We know, we all know, if every word, every deed, every thought of yours were to be put on this big screen to be displayed for everyone to see, all of us would die a thousand deaths in shame. We would want nothing to do with one another. And nothing is therefore more prideful and deceitful than to say, I'm not a sinner. Being blind to our own sins. It is possible to be utterly blind to this and, and never see the log in your own eye and only see the speck in the other's eyes. It is possible for us, even, even as we sit in this church building, to, to be blind to this reality. We know from the letters to the seven churches in, in Revelation that Satan is very capable of deceiving people in the church. Right? It is possible for us to be here worshiping God with our lips, but in our hearts love money more. It is possible for us to be praying to God with our, with our lips, but in our hearts longing for immoral pleasures. It's possible for us to love the, the comfort we can, we can gain through our control of things more than the comforting control of God. Oh yeah, deception is real. The, the enemy's lies are very present in our midst. It's also, I think, why the locusts in verse 7 they, they come to people with crowns of gold, with um, familiar human faces, and with hair like women's hair. They're, they're comforting to look at. They're, I think the, the point of the vision is to say that they're, they're initially kind of attractive. But as it says in verse 8, their teeth are like lion's teeth. They'll eat you up and destroy you. Although at first they just seem like you know, gold that glitters, a familiar face of a friend. So, so it says in verse 20 then, therefore to, to, to see the truth is to repent of the works of our hands, how we have labored for these things, how we have been given to worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, meaning they're lifeless and they're created things, and we have defied, therefore, our creator God. And, and in sin, people will in the last day be completely consumed by these things. In verse 21, they will still not repent. After the sixth trumpet, they will not repent 
of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality. And the Greek word for that is, is fornication, or their thoughts. These are all judgment languages that echo God's rebuke and warning all throughout the Bible, in Daniel, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in, in the Psalms. And, and, and that is how the, the sixth trumpet and the judgment that comes from that ends. It, it ends in the face of this, this terrifying apocalyptic judgment, people being unrepentant. Um, people will say, basically, where is God? Where is his judgment? I'm doing all these things. Everything the Bible says not to do, I'm doing. Where is his judgment? And according to this vision, that is the judgment. You being left to do what you do in your deception. And that's a, that's a terrifying place to be. To have God let you go. For, for him to loosen his, 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 his grip on you. So the call here is simple, that, that for us to, in humility, cry out to God for mercy that will never let us go. For us to confess our sins, to bring our worship before God, not to material things, not to physical pleasures, but to God, to open our eyes and see that we are sinners in need of saving, in need of forgiveness, in need of repentance. The call here is for us to turn to the Lord in humility and, and acknowledge the truth of our sins and therefore repent. Now, I've said repent quite a few times today, so let me just close by clarifying what I mean by that. Because there is a difference between um, all the other religious way of describing repentance and the biblical gospel repentance that Jesus preached about. What's the difference? Religious repentance is... Um, basically, you feel really bad about your sins. Okay. On the other hand, you also feel there's, there's this will in you, uh, goodwill, to atone for your, your own sins, to, to, to make up for the wrong. It is a self-righteous atonement for one's own sins. It's, it, repentance, basically, is a self-righteous self-rescue project so that through proper repentance, you merit forgiveness. You, you become someone who deserves it, deserves being forgiven. And so a lot of times, religious repentance comes with strings. Lord, if you forgive me, I will never do it again. So please forgive me for real, because I, for real this time, won't do it again. That's religious repentance. You're meriting, you're, you're trying to earn forgiveness with the, with, the, with the little bit of tiny goodness you still have left in you. That is not gospel repentance. Uh, in gospel repentance, we surrender every ounce of self-righteousness. We admit that we're so flawed, not even our own repentance is something we can do rightly on our own. Even repentance, if it is genuine, it's a gift we receive from God out of his own kindness. He is so kind and so gracious, he draws repentance out of us. Repentance, therefore, it's his gift. And our response to his grace, not our way of meriting it, and therefore, when we truly repent, we, we will not sit here and enjoy, oh, I've really salvaged that last bit of goodness I've left in me and feel good about ourselves. We only enjoy the righteousness of Christ that was freely given to us, something we didn't deserve, 
but Christ clothes us with when we put our trust in him. When God the Father, therefore the judge, sees us, he sees Christ's perfection surrounding us. Not our own, because we don't have any of our own. And therefore, gospel repentance, unlike religious repentance, will not lead us to take comfort in ourselves or our own resolve to do better next time. Gospel repentance leads us to indulge in joy in the love of Christ that we have so freely at the cross. So all the glory goes to him. All of our worship goes to him. All of our affections, our thanksgiving goes to him. That's gospel repentance. Think of the the six trumpets this way. Uh, Each of these trumpets calling you to stop looking at yourself, stop looking at the world, look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. Look up. Look up and see Christ. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. From the first to the sixth trumpet, it is a call for you to behold him. Your strong and perfect plea before the throne of God, your great high priest whose name is love, and let him cleanse you and present you holy, righteous before the judge. Put your trust in him. That's what the trumpets are saying. And do this now, because the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet is the buzzer. Time ends, and Jesus will return, no longer to mediate, but to consummate, to to bring it to completion. And he will judge the living and the dead, either based on your righteousness or someone else's righteousness covering you. And he will make all things new. The story of redemptive history here on earth comes to an end. It'll be done, and there'll be a whole new book opening up on the other side of the world for those who have repented and have put their trust in their Savior and King Jesus. Get into that story. Get in that book of eternal life now. Make that your greatest personal aim. And do it with a temporal urgency. That's what, that's what this is saying. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, speaking us hard truth sometimes that we need to hear um, because you are a good God, like a good doctor who, who doesn't shy away from our true diagnosis. You present to us the truth, and we thank you for that. And Lord, even though it may be difficult, we know it's, it's not irrational. It's very true, and we need to respond to it. Um, so help us to do that. Help us to repent according to the gospel by looking to Jesus Christ alone. And help us to, therefore, live with the assurance uh, that when the trump does sound, uh, we can say it is well with our souls. And we will still find ourselves standing on Christ, the solid rock, the unshakable rock of our salvation. Lord, give us, give us peace and rest in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.